0: Well, good morning. It's wonderful to see you all here again this morning. It's my privilege. I'm Nathan, for those of you who don't know me. And I have the wonderful privilege of opening up God's Word with you for the next uh, 40 or so minutes. We're going as a church through the uh, Gospel of John. So if you have your journals, are you enjoying the journals? I hope you are, because uh, I think they're really, really helpful in uh, personal and private study. Uh, as you make notes of what's going on uh, through the text. Over the last uh, couple of Sundays, we've been looking at what we know as the prologue. Now, who knows what a prologue is? I first came across that term when I was watching the Tour de France. The very first race on the Tour de France is what they call a prologue. So it's really just an introduction into the race. It's a short part of the race. In uh, literary terms, a prologue is an introduction. It's an introduction to the the book of John. And that's what the first 18 verses uh, represent. And it's a a wonderful introduction to what uh, gets folded out in this particular gospel. Last time I I preached, I mentioned uh, Leon Morris and his wonderful quote where he compared uh, John's gospel to a pool in which a child may may wade and an elephant can swim. It is both simple and profound. It is for the beginner in the faith and for the mature Christian. This morning, folks, we're going to swim a little. We're a part of the prologue where we, we get introduced to this wonderful concept of The word becoming flesh. And all that entails. John summarizes that in in four verses. And then I would dare to say, for the rest of the gospel continues to give us insight into what that means. The word becoming flesh. So let's read the prologue together. We'll read um, from John 1. And we'll read the first 18 verses just to put it in context of what we're going to be discussing today. If you've got your Bibles, please, uh, and journals, please turn with me to John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right or the authority to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him, During the fa- past two weeks, we've looked at the first 13 verses. And you would say as you read the prologue, the, what is the overall focus of the prologue? It's about the divine word. In The first five verses, we saw, we saw the start of, of what John said. He says, in the beginning was the word, so the word was always there. We also found out that the word was with God, so the word was a separate person to God. We found that the word was God. The same essence as God. The second person of the Trinity. The eternal word is coexistent with God. And, and what is the role of the word that we learn? We learn for the first time in Holy Scriptures what the role of the word was. He created. He created all things. He was the divine agent of creation. And he actually sustains life by the word of his power. As you can see in Colossians chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 1, that he was before all things, this is Colossians 1.17, Christ himself was before all things and in him all things hold together. So the divine word holds everything together. Hebrews 1.3 reiterates that wonderful truth. That the divine word is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power, creator and sustainer. It's also a wonderful thing to consider, isn't it, that, that where the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, start at a particular point in time of Jesus' ministry on earth, either through a genealogy or through the works he does, where does John start? He starts his gospel before the creation of the world. In the beginning, we have the divine word. So, these first five verses of the prologue introduce us to who the divine word is. Secondly, we have this witness, this testimony by John the Baptist. And we all know John the Baptist was the forerunner to the Messiah. He came to to witness to the fact that the Messiah was coming. See, witness is a really important thing. What does a witness do? A witness authenticates a testimony about something, right? That's what a witness does. If it's in a criminal law sense, a a witness will testify to the crime they've seen. John the Baptist is a, a witness... And it's a really important Old Testament principle. If you want to understand a little bit more about witness, go to Deuteronomy chapter 19 and look at verse 15 to 21, and, and you'll, you'll read the importance of a witness in, in terms of verifying and authenticating a truth. That's really fascinating, because in John's gospel, if you go to John chapter five, and we'll get there in this series uh, John chapter 5 actually gives five or six witnesses to the veracity of who Christ is. Actually, throughout the book of John, the word witness is used 29 times. It is a significant part of the gospel to provide an account and to authenticate who Jesus is. So John bears witness. He bears witness to two things, that the divine word is the source of life and that the divine word is the true light. And then we move into verses 9 to 13 and we we saw from last week as Paul uh, shared from that section. But even though this divine word came into the world, what happened? Rejection. The world was made by him. He came to his own people, ethnic Israel, and they rejected him. But the great news is that there's new life. There is new life and new birth through all those who receive and believe on the name of Christ. You have the right to become children of God. So as you can see so far in this prologue, these first 13 verses, it's all about the divine word. He has always been. He is God. He is witnessed by John the Baptist um, that he is life, the sustainer and creator of life, and he is the true light. He has come into the world and has been rejected by some. And that might be your experience today. You may be sitting in here and you're just rejecting the whole message of who Jesus is. I'm glad you're here. Because this morning we want to proclaim that he is the only way of salvation. So he came to the world and was rejected by some. But when you believe in his name and receive him, you become a child of God. And now John takes us in these next four verses. And he starts providing further revelation, further insight into the divine word. And he starts showing us that this pre-existent divine word, the one has always existed, the one who's always God, does something incredible. And the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. So what does that mean? The word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. It's quite an incredible concept to try and get your head around. This divine son, this eternal word became flesh. The one that's been fully announced and participating in the realm of creation becomes flesh. And for the first time in the prologue, we actually get a name for who he is in this section. The word is none other than the only Son of God, Christ Jesus. We get that in verse 16 and 17. See, the key point of this particular part of the prologue is that the divine word became flesh. And this verb, to become, is in the sense it's not like being changed into. It's not like a chrysalis, right? It's not like uh, when a butterfly cocoons itself in a chrysalis and then is changed into a butterfly, and thereby the chrysalis ceases to be. But it's in the sense that the word takes on or assumes a new and additional form of existence, the word becomes flesh. It's a bit like a mother, right? A a, a woman, a a lady. Before they have children, they're a woman, a lady. After they have children, they're a woman and a lady, but they're also a mother. They take on a different role. They take on a different... I won't say form, that's not correct, but... They they take on a different, uh, I'll get in trouble if I say that, (laughs) but but the, the issue is, you see what I'm driving at, right? The word becoming flesh doesn't mean the divine son of God replaces his divinity and then takes on his humanity. The word becoming flesh means that the divine son remains the divine son and he takes on the form of a human being and that is critical but let's consider for the rest of the, the time we're here what this actually means we, we call this the incarnation that's a one, one, one word that helps us sort of bring these things together this is the incarnation it's the new form of existence of the divine son incarnate, assumed at the time and this thing is, hes not it's not temporary That's the amazing thing. It's not temporary and it's not reversible, but permanent and irreversible. Jesus Christ now is permanently the God-man. Jesus became what he was not without ceasing to be what he was. That's what I mean by swimming in the theology of the gospel of John. I can't get that around my head at times. That Jesus became what he was not without ceasing to be what he was. So Jesus Christ, the divine word, fully God, added to his existence full humanity in the beginning God created the world through the word now in Christ that same God took on flesh and made his dwelling amongst us the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, the second phrase in the verse. What does this mean, to dwell amongst us? I reckon a better rendition, there's many ways of rendering this word to dwell, and uh, these are some of them. It could be translated to live amongst us, it could be translated to settle amongst us, take up residence. Uh, You probably heard the one tabernacle amongst his people. Referring back to the Old Testament and Exodus. I think the one that resonates with me the most and makes most sense would be, and the Word became flesh and pitched his tent amongst his people. you very careful when you say those words together. Pitched his tent. Because I think there's a really clear allusion to the Old Testament. With Moses and what happens with the with the people of Israel. You see, if you go back to Exodus chapter twenty-five, if you have your Bibles, look back to Exodus twenty-five. You have this promise by God to his people. You know, you know the Exodus story, right? They come out of Egypt, they come out of the promised land. God's taking them to the promised land. And yet they grumble a little bit. They set up a golden calf. They worship other gods. And God's almost done with his people. Moses petitions them and said, Lord, these are your people. You've made a promise, and promise with them. And then God says to Moses in Exodus 25, 8 and 9, where he says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. God wants to dwell in the midst of his people and he he says, I'll do that by way of a sanctuary or by way of a tent of meeting. And then you go to Exodus 33 and if you read Exodus 33 verse 7 uh, through 11, we read these words. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp and he called it the tent of meeting. That's what we just explained. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of the cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Isn't that an amazing response? We see this cloud descending over this tent. Moses in there speaking with God. What's the response of the people? Worship. They had a holy fear for the presence of God. A holy fear for the presence of God. Sometimes I'm not sure if we have that same <laughs> Fear. That's a side point. It's another sermon. We'll go there some other day. Thus the Lord used to speak, verse 11, to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. You see, in these scriptures we've read in Exodus, we see God's glory and presence with his people is later manifest in the life of Israel through the tabernacle and then through the temple. And the language that John uses in this particular prologue is very evocative of God's glory at the tent of meeting by Israel's camp. These associations with Exodus are intentional and part of the theme of the revelation and redemption of the divine word of Christ becoming flesh. Later in the gospel, as we read through it, you, you will see that the glory of Christ is seen in the signs he performs. The very first sign at the end of, in chapter 2, verse 11, states that. You will see the glory as he's lifted up on the cross. And you'll see the glory at his resurrection. This is the revelation of the glory that can only proceed from God's only Son. And this is what it means for the divine word becoming flesh and pitching his tent amongst us. God in the flesh to atone the world of sin. we see his glory this is a reference to the transfiguration we talked about that a couple of weeks ago where Peter, James and and John saw the glory of the Lord on the Mount of Transfiguration it's part of the eyewitness account that testifies to who Jesus is glory is the only son from the father full of grace and truth This is a really interesting little saying, this glory is the only son from the father. Some older versions will have begotten son from the father. I particularly like when we start thinking about this as the the unique one. I think the word when it it uses the only begotten language is misleading because it uh, appears to express a metaphysical relationship. See that this word in the original language is is used commonly in two ways commonly in a way of a an only son or daughter however it's also used as in a way to say this is incredibly unique only one of its kind really interesting and in, in Greek mythology the the mythological phoenix was described as this the only one of its kind if you go to Hebrews 11.17 I think this helps get a, give us a, um, a bit of a understanding of why this word is used Hebrews 11.17 says this by faith Abraham when he was tested offered up Isaac and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son it's the same word only son question for you was Isaac Abraham's only son? no You also had a fellow by name Ishmael so we can't so the, the meaning of this term here in the Abraham story is that Abraham's only son is the one of a kind son he's unique why is he unique? because he's a son of promise. That's what the text tells us. And this is what John uses throughout the Gospel of John. He uses this term four times. Here, in 1.14, and in 118, and then famously in John 3.16, and John 3.18. i don't like us to Retrain our minds. For God so loved the world that he gave his one-of-a-kind son, his unique son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This one-of-a-kind son, we're told, is full of grace and truth. And this is amazing that these two terms appear together, grace and truth. For John, he doesn't use the term grace very often. I think three or four times in the, in the entire gospel. But we know from Paul, he uses it all the time, right? He uses grace and peace unto you. So by grace you say through faith, he uses grace all the time to, to describe the gospel. But for John, he uses it a little bit differently. And he pairs these two terms together, grace and truth. And I reckon there's a strong Old Testament allusion yet again back to Exodus here. And the, the the words used in Exodus, if you look at Exodus 34, verse 6, it's in the midst of this you know um, meeting of the tent and God's presence with his people for the first time. And at this point in time, Moses asked to see God's glory. You remember that story, right? Lord, I want to see Your glory. He like, "You can't see my glory. No man sees me and lives. Can't see that. Go hide in the cleft of the rock, and you'll see the the train of my glory." And the Lord responds to Moses this way in Exodus thirty-four six. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, "The Lord, the God, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious." slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. So the two Old Testament news appear together often of this word's loving kindness and truth. Hesed and Emmet. And I think John, all John's doing is taking those Old Testament allusions and dropping them in here and showing us that the word becoming flesh is an expression of God's loving kindness and truth towards all humanity. It's an expression of his covenant faithfulness. It's also an expression that ultimate faithfulness and loving kindness is found in who? In Jesus. So then you ask the question, well, what is the real significance of the word becoming flesh? I think in 1st John we get some significance on it in 1st John chapter 4 John says this beloved do not believe every spirit but test the spirits to see whether they are from God for many false prophets have come out into the world by this you know the spirit of God every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God it's critically important to understand that Christ came human flesh According to John, here. Because he says, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So that's one of the apologetic things. And for centuries, the church has wrestled between these two issues of the full deity and the full humanity of Christ. And it is a foundational principle of what we believe. He is fully God and fully man, firstly. I mean, Christ comes as a man, as a new person. He does not come into existence. He's always existed. The incarnation is a personal act of the divine son who takes on the form of a human being as a servant in a deliberate and voluntary way critical to understand that Philippians 2 tells us that thirdly Christ has two natures he has a fully divine nature and he has a fully human nature and they're without confusion and they're without change there's no union of these natures there's not a combination of the two natures they are separate and the Son took on A complete human nature comprising of a rational human soul and body. That's the mystery of the Incarnation. The Son in his human nature lived like we do and accepted the limitations of our nature as our representative. And yet the Son continued to exercise his divinity by sustaining the world by the word of his power. amazing and in verse 15 we have the witness of John the Baptist yet again and what does John witness this time to, about Jesus the one who has become flesh he witnesses to his preeminence he witnesses to his status his rank, his dignity it was before even John existed Jesus' absolute superiority and supremacy in comparison to John was related to his priority in time. He always was. And that's what John testifies to. And we move into verse 16 and 17 and we, we see he returns to his argument. You notice verse 15 is in parenthesis. That's an important thing, okay? So parenthesis, he, he's going down a sidetrack. John goes down a sidetrack. He says, okay, this is what I've stated. This is the truth I've stated. The word became flesh. He pitched his tent amongst us. We've seen his glory. He's the one out of a kind son from the father, full of grace and truth. And then he goes off on a little sidetrack. Oh, by the way, John bears witness to these facts. But then he returns to his main argument. Verse 16, for from his fullness, whose fullness? The fullness of the divine word. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Now, this grace upon grace term at the end of this verse is an interesting term. It's because it's translated so many ways in so many different versions of the Bible. I've given you some samples there. NIV, grace in place of grace already given is the NIV. So that's a sort of a replacement. Grace is replaced by grace. ESV and NASB, grace upon grace. That's almost like an addition, right? Grace has been added to grace. Uh, the NET, one gracious gift after another. That's almost like an addition as well. It's just compiling. And then the, the Holman Christian Study Bible, grace after grace from his fullness. So they changed the word order around a little bit, but really that's like the NIV. It's sort of a replacement. Grace has been replaced by grace. So to try and understand this fully, what is he getting at? We need to put verse 17 into its context because he continues it. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So how does that relate? How does it help us understand what he's driving at? I think it indicates, firstly, notice that the law is a gracious gift. I think in in our... New testament thinking, we always think the law is something that's not of God's grace. Sorry. This tells us that the law is God's gracious gift. It was given through Moses. God gave the law to Moses. It wasn't Moses given the law. It was God. It was a gracious gift to, to keep his people um, focused. But, don't you love the contrast of the scripture? Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The fullness of grace is seen in and through Christ. A complete and full manifestation of God's grace and truth is seen in Christ. It was seen through the law, but it's seen in Christ. This grace, as John's view, is greater than the grace that the law, whose function according to John, was primarily to point you to the word, the coming of the divine word and John tells us that from the fullness of his grace and truth we have received grace that replaces earlier grace through the incarnation of the son the promised Messiah and then he concludes the the prologue by restating the truth that no one's ever seen God No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Some translations will have there, no one has ever seen God, the only begotten Son who is at the Father's side has made him known. So here you have a statement of the fact that the one who's at the Father's side or in the Father's lap actually, he is the one who knows the Father intimately and he is the Son, he is the one of the kind Son and he is making him known. See, from what we get from Scripture, you've got to ask, why can man not see God? Why can humans not see God? Why can't we see God? First, it is God's a spirit. Okay? Moses and Isaiah only merely saw the train of God's glory. When the cloud came down over the tent of meeting, he was merely in the, the shadow of God's glory. We can't see God because he's a spirit. And secondly, we can't see God because we're fallen into sin and expelled from God's presence. Genesis 3. But you know the wonderful thing? Jesus has overcome both obstacles. Jesus Christ, the divine word, has overcome both obstacles. He himself, God, became a human being so others could see God in him. And being sinless, and this is the key, and being sinless in his humanity, he died for people. So that sinfulness no longer keeps them from entering into the presence of God. That's a wonderful truth that the prologue leads us to. Just as an aside, for those of you who want to do a little bit more scholarly research <laughs> on this, this, um, this particular proto, look at the very last phrase of uh, verse 18. He has made him known. Just go and do some work on that. I think you'll be really really blessed by looking at what the results may be. I haven't got time to go into that. I had a five minutes worth which won't happen. So in conclusion here, What is the central purpose of the prologue? Why did John start his book and introduce this gospel like this? At the start of my study I would have said just to reveal the divine word as the full son of man. But as I've poured over these scriptures I want to propose another reason why the prologue is here I'm very thankful to a guy by the name of Andreas Kostenberger and one of his commentaries who has done a little bit of work on the literary structure of the prologue and he applies a what we call a chiasm the is designed to say the central focus and point of a portion of literature is in the center. And I agree with them here. Because the central portion of this prologue is the fact that the word has become flesh And that, by association, gives the privilege of you and I believing and becoming God's children. The lines with the purpose statement of John. Remember purpose statement of John in John 20, 30, 31? All these signs are done so that you may believe and have life in his name. The prologue is That. So, we talk about the deity of Christ, we talk about the humanity of Christ, but none of that means anything unless you are in personal relationship with Christ. That is of no value unless you are in personal relationship with Christ. We talk about the deity and the humanity of Christ, and if you are a believer and follower of Christ, none of that matters unless you are growing in your relationship with Christ. So that's the challenge from the start of the the Gospel of John. Firstly, do you know Christ? And is he your savior? Do you have belief in his name? He is the divine word. He is the creator of everything that we see. That means you and me. And yet he became flesh and blood to die on a cross, to atone for the sin that separates us from God. Folks, if you don't know Christ, repent of your sin. Come to him in faith and in belief and experience the joys of knowing who he is. If you do know Christ, if you have belief in Christ, how does this shape your everyday life? But the word became flesh and you are now in a privileged position as a son and child of the king it should shape your mind in, in relation to eternity these truths should drive away the anxiety you suffer as you struggle with the, the, the sin in your life and as you, you struggle with, with realizing who you are in Christ My encouragement, as we go through the gospel, dwell on the truth of who Christ is and it will set you free to a life of liberty and grace and a focus on the eternal son. We're going to sing our final song now. And one of the verses as the the music team comes up is we've added a verse into this famous old song of uh, crown him with many crowns. And the verse goes like this: Crown him the Son of God before the world began, his deity. And yea, who tread where he had trod, otherwise, you who walk round where he walks, crown him the Son of Man, who every grief hath known that wrings the human breast and takes and bears them for his own, that all in him may rest. That's the beauty of the gospel. We rest in the person and work of Christ. Thanks, team.